Hi everyone, welcome back to Mind Matters. Today we're going to be returning to the discussion a couple weeks ago that we had on Witzel's Origins of the World's Mythologies. Here's that book again. So we're going to talk about the last chapter, the one that we hadn't read yet uh, when we did that show. <laughs> so for all those listeners and viewers who are upset that we hadn't finished the book, well, we finished the book and now we will talk about that. That's actually some of the the most, well, what I find to be some of the most interesting things. Like we talked about pretty much the basics of the skeleton of what the, the book's about in the previous show, which is like the majority of the book, basically just making his case for those two, two contemporary systems of mythology that stretch back like 50,000, 60,000 years um, to their original forms back then. And um, just all the evidence for that. So he gets into all of the comparative mythology, um, you know, from all kinds of different uh, regions and oral and textual sources for all of these myths. And so he pretty much makes his point, like uh, makes his case over the period of over over the you know several hundred pages of the book. Um, and it's kind of hard to to like you know discuss all that if you you know without just getting into all those all the minutiae, like all the little minor details. So if you're interested in that, then you really have to read the book to see um, just how he makes the case with all that data. And um, But what he does in the last chapter is kind of um, sums it up and basically gives his thought on kind of the overall meaning and significance of these mythological systems. So in that, in that chapter... What he basically does, he, he highlights about six areas and themes that, um, that kind of account for, for that. Not only the longevity, but the, um, well, the longevity and, and the, the reason for that longevity, the possible reasons for that longevity. Because, um, like, what made this system of mythology, this narrative structure, this storyline, what made that, um, you know, serve, uh, survivable like why did it why did it stick around for so long why wasn't it just like a story like um just if you look in contemporary culture you look at the number of books published for instance every year and you go back a hundred years and you look at all the books published and the vast majority of them no one reads anymore they're out of print they've just fallen off the face of the earth um so what makes something last essentially this is what uh nicholas nasim talib would call like the lindy effect it's something that has something about it that that makes it last, that makes it relevant today, even um, even though it might have been written thousands of years ago. That's why he talks about how uh, that's one of the important things that was that you know that used to be in education with the study of the classics, because you were reading things that that um, that were still relevant today, that have that have stood the test of time, and are are still well still relevant, still meaningful. And there's uh, so. That is a kind of test of a sorts of, uh, in just the history of human culture, what lasts and what doesn't. There's, there's kind of this almost like, almost Darwinian process with ideas where, you know, b bad ideas, maybe some good ideas too, but bad ideas, something, there's something about some ideas that, that uh, makes them not last, it makes them very like situation and context dependent and, you know, after a generation or two, they're just discarded. They're not remembered. They they don't make any impact. Um, and Otalib would argue that chances are, if something doesn't survive, then it didn't have very much value. 
but there's always going to be exceptions. So there's always going to be like the the undiscovered or the forgotten classic, you know, the 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 book or piece of music that was written hundreds of years ago or or hundred years ago that kind of fell out of favor and no one really remembered it. And then someone rediscovers it and says, oh wow, this is like a masterpiece, a, for, a forgotten masterpiece that, that that like our current culture has neglected. And it may experience a kind of renaissance, but um, but probably the probably in most cases. That's not what's happening. It's just things get forgotten for a reason. It's because most of what, not everything that gets produced can be um, exceptional, but you know by definition, there's whether it's in music or well the arts or any kind of writing or academia. There's going to be the vast majority of stuff that is just kind of like blah. Um, that's not really even worth remembering just because it's kind of it doesn't make an impact. It's not saying anything original. But there's going to be that that small minority of like cultural productions that that are relevant then and will continue to be relevant, and so that's what he's saying about the Laurasian mythological system is that there's something about it that well there must have been something about it that was significant because it's lasted arguably for like fifty thousand years in its in its uh, in its overall structure. Some of the details have changed and morphed over time for sure, but there's something in that structure that has allowed it to like withstand the test of time. And so one of the first of the kind of six areas <clears throat> that he focuses on, um, well, just overall, b before we get into those six, he basically, uh, one of the reasons that he gives for this longevity is that you can read this mythological storyline, this narrative, as essentially a metaphor for life. So it's, it'll be relevant in some way, in, even in a symbolic way, perhaps even in an unconscious way, to every human being, because it's, because it's, uh, it will be, because it's representative of their life in its universal aspects. So um, I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs on that to give an idea of where he's going to go with his discussion here. So he writes, The Laurasian storyline, thus, is a metaphor of the human condition of human life from its mysterious beginnings to its impending ominous end. It was the genial stroke of the creator of Laurasian mythology that it correlates and thus explains at the same time both the universe and the human condition, where we came from, why we are here, and where we will go. Laurasian myth is a metaphor applied to everything around us, to the world and to the divine powers that govern it. It answers in an encoded and shrouded way, and on a symbolic and metaphoric level, the eternal question, why are we here? Viewed from the present vantage point, after detecting the Laurasian storyline, Laurasian ideology seems to be based on a fairly simple idea, the correlation of the life of humans and the universe. But someone about 40,000 years ago had to come up with it first, and it is closely related to the concepts of the Paleolithic hunt, the rebirth of animals and shamanism. Um, as it is closely related to these things, it must have been a shaman who did so. So he's giving his, his uh, thought on what, who must have, what individual or group of individuals must have come up with it, given the, you know, the historical context of the time. So he, he links that to shamanism. Also, that's supporting, and well, that is supported by um, you know, various other parts in the book where he's talking about the the hunter-gatherer like systems and societies, cultures, and how they were like shaman-centered, and the shaman would be the one who passed on the the mythological tradition, all the all the the stories and myths, 
and uh, and so it you know it makes sense that it would be the shaman that came up with it in the first place. So, <coughs> excuse me. One other thing on the next page. So he he adds. Uh, Yet there is more to the Laurasian novel. Its myths work on many levels, as all well constructed myths and other artistic creations should indeed do. Laurasian myth. Um, then he's got a, a few bullet points. So the first is an interesting story in itself, one that people like to retell constantly and elaborate on. Two, is based throughout on common human experience, something that, due to common human brain structure, is easily translatable, understandable, and applicable by correlation to the world around us. And three, offers an explanation of the human condition and of the world around us in our own human terms. So... Just in there, we've got this kind of, you know, overall explanation for why it's why it's so universal and why it uh, why it's universally applicable, and therefore maybe why it's lasted for forty thousand years or more. And this gets into some of the. This is where um, what he's saying might have the most resonance with like a Jungian approach or like Jordan, Jordan Peterson, because like we said in the last show, he doesn't really give much credence to Jung's hypothesis that the universals in um, in world mythologies come down to like this shared instinctive like uh, collective unconscious because well first of all because it's um, demonstrably not true that all cultures share all of these elements um, there are only a, a few features like he argues in the sections on Gondwana and before that the Pangean myth system there's only a few features that are shared universally and you know it doesn't really resemble much the um, like the Jungian approach, like I read a couple of Jung's, a couple of Jung's books, like one on the psychology and alchemy, where he's looking at Wolfgang Pauli's alchemical dreams, and that's one of his arguments for this uh, collective unconscious is that Pauli couldn't couldn't have known about these alchemical um, imagery, uh, like symbols and images, and that it must come from the collective unconscious. The implication being that anyone at any point at any time in the you know in the, in human history, could have had the same dreams and the same alchemical images. Well, um, Witzel might would say that's probably a stretch if you look at the actual history and the actual like uh, record of what mythological systems, systems and symbols and images um, there actually are. So, um, and then there's the the that idea. Of, so, you know, that's what he wouldn't agree with about Young. But the what he would agree with is that there are there is kind of like a universal human. Um, sh a shared human nature, essentially, that um, that these myths can speak to and uh, account for, account for, and you know, uh, be applied to. So this is where, um, like Jordan Peterson's approach in, ma in Maps of Meaning, is kind of relevant, where he gets into, um, like, he tries to to find the 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 really true like universals and relate them to basic psychological processes and and like you know brain chemistry on on one level. So, or on another le on another level. So there's this kind of multi-level approach where the myths. Um, I mentioned this in the last show that we did on it. There's a there's like the literal storyline, but then there's kind of like the hidden meanings and the the suggested meanings that that kind of uh, speak more to the subconscious, that uh, that don't speak in like in literal words, but speak on this more symbolic kind of metaphorical um, level, and people do respond to that and. They like if you do any study into um, like filmmaking, for instance, like mm -hmm. a good filmmaker 
understands this and understands that, well, and uh, not only a filmmaker, but like a film score composers. Like they understand that there are certain like techniques and, um, and just certain ways that people respond to either certain types of music or the combination of certain types of images, um, even like directional things. Like people will respond to symmetry or, um, or perspective, certain things in or out of perspective, or um, you know, left-right dichotomies, um, up, down, um, and just certain kinds of cutting and all this stuff that's, that's speaking on a non-verbal uh, level. That's uh, that's saying something on a non-verbal level. So there's going to be that going on in this myth too. So um, those that's kind of what he gets into with these with his uh, you know his six subheadings, uh, six subsections in this in well, this bit. Well, just a quick note on on the subject of, of films and filmmaking. You know, I recently watched a, a movie called King Kong Skull Island. That's and, a great one. <laughs> and I was thinking about. Um, I was thinking about uh, Witzel's point about um, you know local cultures depending on millennia of path dependencies um, that have uh, that have made their way into modern realizations, and um, you know arguably most most screenwriters are, are influenced by other film, other stories, other novels. Uh, if they've read any religious literature, obviously that's going to be an influence. Um, but there are there are certainly a number of uh, elements to that one film, and, and probably a lot of others, um, that include the conflict of monsters, uh, the the uh, incorporation of um, the the rituals of the of the native people, uh, which which seem to be a kind of a modern day watered down pop culture translation of uh, Laurasian. Um, myth, myth making, um, or the the first great novel, as Witzel likes to call it. Um, but aside from that, Harrison, I was, uh, you know, I was I was wondering where he would go with all of this because, uh, like you said, I mean, this is this is um, a few hundred pages of comparative uh, mythology, where you know he's he's breaking down uh, the 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 kind of um, mytho themes and, and motifs of all of these different cultures uh, that span throughout the world and, and thousands of years, and says, well, yes, Indo-Iranian mythology also had this, uh, this, this dragon-slaying uh, myth that's in common with the Japanese myth, except with this discrepancy. But still, there are so many correspondences um, over, over time, again, time and space that you you know you you're forced to pay attention to all of these and and to uh, think on the fact that there is this kind of larger story that has that has perpetuated itself through thousands of years, mm -hmm. and that arguably uh, has influenced the, the what is now the the world's three largest three or four largest religions, um, and he even traces those. You know those thousands of year old myths to the New Testament, the Old Testament, um, uh, Islam, um, and even <coughs> even as far forward as the kind of secular myths like communism, like Maoism. Like he's got some references there. How the, the same the same things are going on with uh, these modern movements. And he gives this like this funny example 
Um, I don't know if I can find it quick, but he's talking about um, like these modern versions and how um, just the ways in which they've been adapted in modern culture. And so he gives the example, um, I should be able to find it really quick here. Um, yeah, so I'll just read this paragraph because I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, myth reasserts itself even in societies that propose to do away with traditional culture, such as the former Soviet Union and communist Korea and China. Merely new myths or new versions of existent myths were created. Again, in Cassirer's words, they were brought into being by the word of command of the political leaders. <coughs> we have the Stakhanov myth of the successful worker in the Soviet Union and the miraculous birth of Kim Il-sung on a mountain in North Korea. Instead, he was born near Pyongyang and his transformation into a war hero. Instead, he stayed away from the front in the Soviet Union during World War II. Or there are various stories and picture books of the 60s and 70s about young Chinese heroes who, Mao-style, overcame all natural and human-made difficulties, relying on Mao in their heart, just like others have Jesus or Rama in their hearts. And during the, cult the Chinese Cultural Revolution, dozens of such tales were created and propagated in comic books, theater, films, and so on. Right. It's, it's, uh, Wutzel seems to be making the point that, um, that these new socialist and communist um, uh, political movements have, have kind of mythologized themselves, mm -hmm. um, but have appropriated the, uh, the lone rider mythology that, um, that is so common in, in a lot of uh, mythologies that Campbell would talk about uh, towards their own ends, where, you know, they're they're kind of doing away with so much of uh, the old traditional religious tribal myths that have that have come down and 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 that have that they have recordings of, uh, and in their place, uh, kind of vaunted themselves into this into this new position, mm -hmm. and um, and what was so interesting also is is Woodsell thinking on how. Like just bringing all of this wealth of knowledge uh, and insight he has to the current day, and and saying for his readers, for his audience, for his students that um, you know there there is something of value uh, in looking back at this you know the greatest story ever told, uh, arguably, um, and not discarding it in the way that that the these political movements. And in the way that fundamentalist uh, thinking has taken over many of the world's religions uh, in their way. Uh, so he, he said that, that that kind of presents itself as something of a, of a threat. Um, that, the, that the polytheism, uh, the, the kind of uh, traditions of, of cultures that have, that have taken all of these stories to heart and have revivified them over many years by uh, reenacting the rituals, by sharing the stories, by even adding own, their own kind of, um, their own spin or their own uh, cultural uh, interpretation of them. Uh, that, that's, that's what helped keep many societies and cultures cohesive uh, and, and has arguably uh, given meaning to their existence in, in in trying to answer the age-old questions that you uh, that you mm -hmm. uh, presented at the top of the show, um, 
so he's he's really kind of thought about it uh, in a holistic way. I mean, he even presents uh, towards the very end the possibility that we, you know, we may have to we may have to uh, as a as a, a human race come up with new uh, mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow you think that given the, the, the long lasting, uh, effects and, and pertinence of all the other, of the Laurasian story that it would somehow, uh, I think fit into this newer mythology or would need to yeah, fit considering to how significant, uh, they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then that's the problem with the, with the modern myths, especially the modern secular myths. And this is something that Peterson talks about too in Maps of Meaning. Is it the like there's a reason that they that they lead to disaster? You know, in every case, it's because they're missing something essential. They're like uh, they've they've like chopped out essential portions of the the previous mythology, and you're left with this kind of caricature of 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 the original system that uh, that applies to um, like all of life, like Witzel says, like a complete a complete a complete story and explanation of all the facts, basically. Whereas, like modern, um, like the mi- modern scientific worldview and the modern um, big ideologies are, um, they're like too skinny. They're like anorexic versions of these other myths. They're they're missing they're missing the meat of what makes these myths work, what made them work, and um, um, well, and so the the reason for that. Like the reasons that he gives for that, for what, for these original myths, like the things that make them work. So I'll get, uh, I'll talk about the the one I just mentioned, the 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 total explanatory force of them. This is the sixth point that he makes. Um, basically, that's what they, that's the reason that they were, that they were so effective is that they did cover everything, or they, well, they attempted to at least. Well, they provided an answer, whether that answer was like true or not in the sense that you know we think of as as truth you know scientific truth that at least it was a coherent answer there was like an entire worldview into which everything fit from like the the physical facts to the spiritual facts to the you know the moral uh, the moral structure and the societal structure of of you know everything um, and that is what gives meaning so when you have a, a system that is lacking let's say the like the spiritual element which mm-hmm. is tied to the moral element like the the actual force for um for what what should be done in the world like what 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 true and good action right action should be when that's missing you don't have like a you don't have a compass for where you're going you don't have a direction for where you're going and that leads leads leaves open the possibility that you're going to go in a very wrong direction um so i want to read one quote on that point that uh that whistle makes he writes um Laurasian mythology achieves this by a framework familiar to early humans, that of human life, of birth and death, of several generations, and of clan interaction. The human life cycle, bisexuality, by that he means like, um, you know, male and female, family and small-scale society are woven into a well-built structure with many levels of meaningful tales, a novel that explains our origins and that of everything around us in the anthropomorphic image of, pro- of procreation, birth, growing up, aging, and death. Significantly, the scheme also holds out the hope, even the certainty, for rebirth, mm-hmm. both of oneself, both for oneself and for the world. 
he calls he calls this overall framework um, a garden of symbols. It's a nice uh, nice image of the the whole mythological structure. So he basically lays out he summarizes there the the points he makes in the other five. These are the the features that that um, <clears throat> kind of like the symbolic features of this whole system. And just to summarize from like the last show for those who either haven't seen it or have forgotten, like the, the main overall like Laurasian storyline is like the creation of the earth, the generations of the gods, the, the descent of humans from one of those gods, um, the, the origin of, uh, of like that then human society leading then to uh, a catastrophe, a cataclysm, um, where the earth is destroyed and preparing it for a new birth. That's like, that's the, the Laurasian storyline in a nutshell. Um, and within that, you have all the kind of individual myths. So you've got like, um, you know, stories like the flood story or uh, tales of like cosmic and divine destruction and, um, well, the generations of the gods, the different types of gods in, in various systems like the, like the Titans in the, um, you know, in the Greek system or the, you know, Asuras, I think, or um, in, in the, one of the like ancient Indian systems mm -hmm. and, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the overall framework and the overall storyline and the way he kind of the way he interprets that is as kind of like he's like he like I've said before the a kind of symbol and metaphor for life um, and I'd just say that that's just one so just just one correspondence even if it might be the biggest one so we're going to get into some of the other kind of correspondences and what we see in that you know as we go on today like so the the first one that he talks about is just the life cycle so, like you have what you have in this mythological storyline is the life cycle of the universe, like the birth and death of the of the world, and you see that in the the uh, the like the origin myths, the creation myths for the world. Oftentimes, the the world is born out of an egg, you know, like um, like animals, whether uh, you know uh, a bird egg or like an ovum. You know, life is birthed uh, and comes comes from an egg. And so the the early universe was perceived the same way, and sometimes with the the combination of of two fluids like the the salty sea and blood, you know, representative of like you know the seed and and blood of uh, you know produced by humans in those regions, um, <laughs> those regions of their bodies, I should say. And um, so there's this kind of this very organic um, organic imagery of the creation of the universe, of the origin of the universe, that, that will, um, you know, for anyone familiar with being a human, it, that will resonate on some level. Like, it will, it, will, it will pluck at those metaphorical, you know, strings that we have somewhere in our consciousness that, uh, that you know, it rings a bell. Um, and, but not only that, there's this, uh, there's another aspect that, or another kind of metaphor or kind of analogy that, that that speaks to and that is that that like getting back to some of the shows that we've done previously on Dabrowski like this idea of positive disintegration now this seems to me to be one of these fundamental things that isn't explicitly recognized by most people in general including like academics that there's that there is this process of positive disintegration that is inherent in just the structure of reality not just in human consciousness like Dabrowski points out in like psychological positive disintegration, but the, this process of, um, like, the only reason that something can can grow or change or develop is by, like, a destruction of the previous 
thing, the previous, the pre-existent thing. So, like with the world, in like in so in this mythology, that shows up in the overall framework of the the final destruction, um, uh, creating the ground for creating like creating the soil for the the growth of the new world, but also in individual myths. So with like the the slaying of the dragon, which shows up all over in Laurasian myth, and like and then the the most um, you know the most resonant example for Western culture the you know the the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, that is this this process of the death of something resulting in a rebirth. This is like a universal symbol that applies um, not only to all myths but to something something about human nature, but also about like reality itself, the st like the structure of reality. When you look at even like chemistry and physics, there's this this like destructive element that. Like even just the like the interaction between different elements, different molecules, where its previous form is destroyed in some way to make way for the new form, you know, losing electrons or you know, or or losing like neutrons or protons. Like there's there's these processes of transformation that go on that that are necessary for the production of new things, whether it's like a new isotope or a new molecule or. Um, or you know, up to macroscopic objects like you know, just anything that you create with your hands, you have to you have to deform the old old shape in order to create a new shape. And it's the same thing with psychology, with personality. If um, in order to to refine your personality, in order to develop your character, there are things about your old character or your present character that have to be destroyed or reshaped or reformed. That that means like chopping some parts off, you know, burning some parts, or however, killing them. Like those are those that that's where that imagery comes into play. So there's something universal about not just the life cycle, but about like about experience itself that is summed up in this overall storyline. And then he, um, um, like the second one he gives is the is mentioned like the the duality of nature. So you in, in these you have at the very beginning often you have like. Uh, like Father Heaven and you know Mother Earth or Mother Nature, and like the 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 so there's this split of reality into this duality, and and you see that not only in um, in sexuality with the male and the female, but with like it, right combined in those two divine figures, you have the heaven and the and the earth. There's this this uh, this this duality between like the above and the below, and um, uh, well, and that too, like, is is applicable on so many levels, just to to all types of duality, and that and those themes are explored in all these myths. I'll get to how that applies in these uh, in these other ones. Um, the third one he lists is like the the universality of like the relations between people, um, but not just with between people. I, I'd say just the universality of relation um, uh, of like the relational nature of the universe. I guess. Um, and that applies on the level of individuals and families and clans and like the social responsibilities and the the just the relational nat nature of of life um, especially when you look back in a, in a hunter-gatherer society where um, y like what would the phrase be like um, like the extreme individualism um, where that wouldn't work like you can't isolate yourself and elevate yourself from other people in such a in such a situation, you have to cooperate to some degree, like because your survival um, is dependent on uh, like other people, and the, and other people's survival is dependent on you. It has to be this cohesive, like you have to be operating as a to some degree as a collective, 
um, uh, with like mutual kind of social responsibility. Well, just to add to that, uh, a couple of the things he, he kind of gives credence to is the fact that this tribe or family unit or group unit is in microcosm um, a, a symbol or a representation of the relationship between the gods and the, and the deities. Right. And that it's, um, it's this incorporation, it's this saying, you know, I am at my level, but I do have something in common in, in my function, in my relevance, in, my, uh, in, in the meaning of my life, when I not necessarily identify with the gods um, in, a, in a way that would suggest hubris, but, but that, uh, that, you know, as, as a unit, as part of a unit, um, my function is important. And, uh, and that I don't function outside of uh, this tribe or, or, or in relation to other people who share a connection and a reverence for uh, the relations between the gods and, and the deities and, and the conflicts and the struggles uh, that they have um, been presented as having through the stories, through the mythologies. So in that way, I think uh, he also says that, that there is a great amount of meaning that's been incorporated um, by this kind of, for lack of a better word, identification with or, or, um, or connection to uh, the way that the, the gods have had to um, go on their adventures and, their, and engage in their struggles and, and do the things that they do uh, in order to exist, in order to um, to bring the story forward, mm-hmm. yeah, um, that that and that relates to um, the like some of the further points where he's talking about the well, they kind of all mi- mix together like that. I mentioned the above below like duality. Um, one of the the main themes of this of this system is that. Um, Everything on the the lower part, everything within the lower part of creation. So like, uh, so like the earth, everything on the earth. So all like all of nature and human interactions are mirror images, in some sense, of what's going on in the heavens, mm-hmm. in the in the upper regions of the of the universe. And so there's this this correlation between the divine realm and the earthly realm. And so, um, so it works it works in all these different directions. So like, there's this relationship with the with the above, but there's also um, like uh, like our interact our interactions um, on Earth, you know, on our level, will also mirror something something within that other realm too. So this gets to, or there's an implication here that is one of the one of the main themes of Laurasian myth, which is the way I see it. It's kind of like a um, it embeds this recognition um, this recognition of um, cause and effect, and the the idea of basically like responsibility, and this is found in often in the in the uh, like the destruction myths. So there's there's a link. So there's a there's a moral element here. So this is a like an injunction to do this and don't do this um, because bad things will happen if you do this, and that's a basic. Um, again, that's just something universally true about human nature. About uh, about experience itself, that some things work and some things don't. So the way the the Laurasian myth spells it out, often in the flood myth, is that you know something someone does something wrong, um, 
you know, it might be a woman or a man, like in, like in the Bible, it's Eve that, uh, you know, gets deceived by that dastardly snake and, uh, and then, um, you know, influences Adam to eat that apple and bad things happen. But, the, but there are often, um, th that same theme shows up all over the place. So there's something that some human does wrong, often like violating a taboo, eating, the, eating something they shouldn't, doing something that they shouldn't, that, uh, that brings the wrath of the gods, you know, of the, of the heavens upon them and causes destruction. Within that, there's the, 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 the overall theme, I think, of this cause and effect and responsibility. It's like, what you do matters. Um, there are certain things that if you do them, you'll be setting yourself up for disaster. And you might be setting up more than just yourself for disaster. Like, um, there's, this, there's this aspect of like, almost collective responsibility where it's like, um, where humans, like humanity, is on the wrong path, like doing the wrong thing. And bad things will happen as a result of that. And like the, the moral of that story is to do the right thing. Now, whether any specific um, like moral st statement um, or ethical statement in any of these things is true or not is an open question. Like that's for, that's for humans, I think, to, to discern and develop you know, on our own to figure out you know, what, is, what are the right things to do. But the idea is there that there is a right and a wrong thing, or there are right and wrong things to do. Some things do lead to disaster. Some things lead to better outcomes than others. Some things work and some things don't. And um, so in, a, in religious terms, you could call that just the, like the doctrine of sin. There are certain things that, 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 that you can do that miss the mark. You know, hamartia, the, the, like the, the, the Greek word for sin. Um, Tracing back to the root for missing the mark, you know, in an archery competition, there are certain there are certain cases where you miss the target, and when you miss the target, well, what you want to do is you want to hit the target because that's when that's when things are right in the world. That's when you're acting according to according to your nature, like to to get into like maybe like some scholastic or Aristotelian like philosophy. It's like the humans have a nature, and um, you know, Laurasian myth would agree with that, and. There are, so there are certain things within that nature that that um, that you do that will be right that will be right with not only your nature but that nature in the context of its mirroring with the higher realms. It's like there's that kind of like that sweet spot of action and of behavior where you're in line with the way things should be, where you're doing the right thing, where um, um, where there where which will lead to success of one sort. Not necessarily success in the terms in which, like, you might automatically think success is, but like, kind of like cosmic success. Mm. You might have a a horrible um, end, like Jesus or or something like that. You might have this tragic end, but you might have been doing the right thing. Like that might have been the right decision to make in that case. And again, that's up to kind of like individuals and groups to discover like the specifics on their own to see if if any of these like cultural systems are actually correct. But um, <clears throat> but that's kind of like the overall theme there. And uh, the next one that he gets is, is related to that, and that's the four generations of the gods, because, because there is that, um, that uh, correlation between like above and below, that mirroring, um, that has to do, so, so there's like human action that is um, like mirrored in the, in the actions of the gods or like the, whatever's going up in those, in those heavenly spheres. Um, and oh, for, well, I forget what I was going to say there, but um, but well, I want I want to bring I want to 
make two comments on this, on these four generations, because he points out that the, the four generations, well, yeah, okay, this is where, where I was going to go with that. So the, the correlation, the, the mirroring aspect is you have these four generations of the gods, but the mirroring on the, you know, on, in our world is the, the four generations of life, the four seasons of life. Um, there's this, there's this like symbolic or metaphorical like relationship between the two. So you have these four generations of the god, well, gods. Well, what can what can that possibly say about human life? And um, there's a couple different directions. One is, um, well, there's a few. Well, there's probably multiple. But the the two that came to mind um, were because I think it was like a few years ago. It might have been in like 2016. We did a truth perspective show. Um, I think it was on Ponderology, but we but we talked about this idea, um, like the fourth turning, and by uh, William Strauss and Neil Howe. And the reason we brought this up was because uh, I think it was Steve Bannon was talking about it. Mm-hmm. So he's like, he's like, oh, the fourth turning is coming, and and uh, kind of like going Alex Jones on everyone about the the disaster that's coming to uh, you know American society and, and world society. There's going to be a war with China and all this stuff. And um, but I was interested because I you know had this book and. Um, I was, so I was wanted to know what what it was all about, and it's basically um, like you don't have to be a fan of Steve Bannon to kind of appreciate what's the stuff in this book. What the, what they're basically saying is that um, that there's a there is this four generation theme that seems to show up, and they they trace it back to mythology too. So they're talking about like um, all of these different myth systems, like um, um, like the Romans, the Greeks, the like the Chinese, Babylonians. Um, Basically, making the same observation that uh, Witzel did about the, the almost near universality of this four generations theme, um, but I'll get to. But like I said, there are these two applications of it. The first one is in um, that. Well, what they're arguing is that there is a a recurring pattern in history of four generations. So you'll have um, one generation has a certain character. The next generation after that, so their children will, will have a, a, a different character, and so on for four different generations. In that fourth generation, there will usually be a crisis of some sort, mm-hmm. and then the cycle repeats. The, the, that fourth generation has children, and their their character happens to resemble the the character four generations ago, and it just repeats of the, like these four kind of archetypal generational patterns just keep repeating, and so you can divide history into these kind of like eighty to ninety year segments. And find these recurring patterns. And that's essentially what this book is: is finding these patterns in American history, finding these uh, um, these different sequences of generations. Like they, so the Romans called them like a cycula, like a, a secular, like a rotation. Um, I, th- I can't remember if what what cycula actually means, but um, um, but they find these like what they call like quaternities in all these different cultures. So like the Buddhists and um, um, the the Maya, the Dakota, the you know the Bible, the, and so it was often called like a great year. A great year was divided into four seasons, and the great year might be like thousands of years or something. But there was a uh, but the but these cultures also had this idea of the of the, the the great generation. So like the which kind of corresponds to the life cycle of one person. So what Witzel does is he he brings this down to um, just the the basic human experience of of your family relations, because the the most common um, well the the most common number of like 
of ancestors or like relations that you have is often three or four. So if you imagine yourself, if you're like a young adult, you'll have children, you'll have parents and grandparents. So, the, so your children will basically have great-grandparents, great four generations. So it's usually like, um, you know, unless you're lucky enough to have some great-great-grandparents that, uh, that stick around, that's usually probably a more modern phenomenon if, if you, you know, when you have people living into their 90s or their 100s. <clears throat> For the most part, most people only, will only ever have experience of their grandparents or their great-grandparents. Great and within that structure, that family structure, you've got all four generations represented. Um, and that, that, so it's kind of like this interlocking and interweaving, like, um, system of, uh, uh, of generations. So in your one life, you've got experience of all these generations, but it plays out over the entire life cycle of, well, that entire 90, li 90 year cycle that, um, that's just kind of going like this, you know, throughout, throughout all of history. And so that's how Witzel connects it. Um, it's basically the four generations of the gods relate to like the four seasons of man. So like the, your childhood, your young adulthood, or no, like what are the, I've got it here. The, um, so yeah, the four seasons, the, the childhood, young adulthood, yeah, midlife and elderhood. And that's a, a common thing among most cultures too, is the division of the individual life into those four, um, those four pattern, or those four, four, um, what's the word, like, stages of life, essentially. And <clears throat> so that's the, in, so in Witzel's system that uh, the Laurasian myth is like, just like there's the, the, the overall storyline, which applies to like birth and death, so the life cycle of a, of a human, the four generations are also kind of a, uh, um, a symbolic or like a higher, like metaphorical symbolic representation of the the four generations within a within one cycle within one great generation and the four stages of life um, from from infanthood to to old age. There's this kind of there's this universality to the human experience again, to the to the individual life cycle divided into four, but also in the in that individual life in relationship to the other generations, the ones before you and the ones that come after you. So, um, so you start out as an infant with your three generations before you, and then as you get older, you become the great-grandparent with the great-grandchildren. So all, all interactions between those four generations are represented um, and experienced over the course of a life. You know, if you manage to, if you're one of the... Um, you know, one of the humans that manages to have children, because you know, historically and presently, you know, not all do, and not are not all uh, are able to, or have historically been able to. So, but overall, it's kind of like this universal, universally applicable um, system that will resonate with people, whether they consciously realize it or not, just because it it uh, it matches in some in some nonverbal way, often some kind of analogical way that, that, um, that speaks to the unconscious as opposed to just spelling it out. It's not like, you know, a myth wouldn't work if you just said, oh, you know, there are great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, and children. And there, and there is a 90-year cycle where all do these things. It's like, right. no one's going to, like, that's not... No, it works on multiple <laughs> levels, right. and it's, it's not, it doesn't have a, a, a direct, literal interpretation necessarily 
But you know, when, when you were describing that, it reminded me a little bit of this interview I recently watched with uh, Charles Nenner, who's one of these uh, trends forecasters who talks about cycles quite a bit as well. Um, I haven't read all that much about him, and his website is uh, terribly unimpressive. But uh, one, one of the things that he, um, he mentioned in, in this interview is that he was invited by Putin uh, to speak to him about the cycles uh, of war and conflict in the world and, um, and about the conflict that is likely to occur within the United States as well as the United States and, and other countries in the world as well. And, uh, you know, Nenner's gripe was that um, few people in, in U.S. media were paying attention uh, at the time when he, was, when he was meeting Putin in, I think, 2012 and, uh, to discuss this. And uh, as, a, as a religious uh, man, um, it, it, it's, it's interesting that Putin... Well, maybe not so interesting. Maybe, maybe that it's part and parcel of his reverence for larger uh, trends and, and cycles of, of things to occur. But he sought out Nenner's uh, insight into, into these cycles of, of human experience, and, and it seems to be what's informed uh, the, the current government of Russia in its, in its kind of approach to geopolitics and, con and conflict. Um, but I did want to get back to a couple of things that, uh, that occurred to me as, as you were describing um, Witzel's, you know, the implications for um, Larisian mythology as, it, as it's come to be, as it's come to manifest in, in today's world. Uh, just again, bringing this to current events, you know, I was uh, listening to uh, a critique of CNN's climate crisis um, town hall, which is seven hours of CNN interviewing uh, Democratic politicians on what they were prepared to do to to stave off the climate crisis and what they were prepared to do to uphold, you know, the, this kind of postmodern, nihilistic, uh, ideologically possessed um, set of policies that that many of them seem to be on board with, and um, taken out out of the equation completely. Uh, was any sense of morality or God, but put in there was the anthropomorphizing, if I pronounce that correctly, of, of human beings onto, uh, onto all of these earth changes that we're seeing right now and onto climate change. Um, and, you know, there, Witzel's book does describe a lot of anthropomorphizing, that there, that there is a lot of projection um, and responsibility taken through these myths on the part of individuals and, and tribes for how, you know, how, the, how the crop goes, how, what, the, what, the, um, what the state of affairs is on Earth. But it seems to me that, that, this, that this idea has been kind of twisted and subverted by uh, by people who have taken out the 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 deity, the deity or, or the god out of the equation, and they're they're misplacing natural processes in the world with you know uh, with their own political ideology, i.e., you know the extinction rebellion idea. Um, and and the other thing that 
occurred to me was that uh, it's like Witzel says that one of the great values of, of the mythology, this, this story, is that it holds out the hope for rebirth, as you were saying earlier, Harrison. That there is, uh, that there is more to all of this, that there is a, the possibility of, of regeneration of, of life afterward. But, but inherent in that is this kind of a death of some kind that, that may exist on the personal level or the macro level. And, and it seems like this idea too has been pathologized in, in the way that, for instance, Christian Zionism would seek to bring out you know, the eschaton and, and the, the end days in the Middle East by supporting the, the, the militant uh, approach on the part of Israel and in, in creating a great Middle Eastern con conflagration that would somehow bring on the second coming. So it's as though you know, we have these, these ideas that get... Um, you know, it's how is it appropriated? With what intent? Uh, are we forcing the issue in many cases? I think we are. Where, where the mythologies would seek to view them as a natural process and something that shouldn't be forced. So, uh, there were those ideas as well that I thought I'd throw into the mix. Well, just on that, I, I, I don't think the anthropomorphize is the right word to use because... Um, it's not that they're anthropomorphizing, like that would be like ascribing human qualities to like climate change, mm -hmm. like as if climate change were like a a human shaped god or something that that had like intentions. It's that they're well, human they're making it induced. Yeah, yeah, anthropogenic. Anthropogenic. Yeah. So, the, so the so in the, like the Laurasian mythology, everything in one degree or another is anthropogenic mm -hmm. because uh, human human actions will. That are in intrinsically like intertwined and related to everything that happens in the universe. So there's like this this link. Well, this importance first of all in like speech. This is in the the fifth point that he makes about the 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 structure of society in the universe. That there is this um, kind of um, that it is um, often speech that brings order to chaos, and that that uh, creates. Um, again, something that Jordan Peterson points out in his study of mythology, and that like so the cosmos itself, like the the cosmos is the cosmos because it's not a chaos. Like there's a, a chaos that is unstructured and unordered, and then a cosmos is something that is structured and ordered. And so every every human action will have um, an effect on the world, whether in well both in the sense that we think of it today in the scientific mindset as like a you know a causal relationship, you know like like the climate change people would say, you know, we make too much CO2 and that CO2 is causing climate change. But in, the, but in addition to that, the Laurasian myths would say that there's a, a kind of almost like um, kind of spooky action at a distance that like human intentions and behaviors will, will influence the, the heavenly realms and, the, and what goes on in the world in a, in a, in a way that's like on top of that. Mm -hmm. So it's the, it's the human sin, it's the human mistakes and the bad choices that we make that will bring on like catastrophe, not necessarily through any of the causal mechanisms that, that you know, science describes. Um, so this gets back to like the, the one example is the, the Chinese um, like myth of what's it called? The, uh, like the, the, the heavenly dynasty or what's, what's the name of the Chinese system? I can't remember. But basically, close. something like that, where the like the everything's right in the world when the 
when the the like the the leadership is in line with God uh, or the you know the heavens and everything is kind of right in the world when something gets corrupted it it breaks the connection it kind of it pollutes the connection and the so things are not right in the world anymore and that's when things start to to kind of get shaken up and and uh, you know it's like when something goes wrong in your car it's like one thing fails and then another thing fails and things just fall apart it's this entropic process well i just wanted to interrupt and, and say real quickly that 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 seems to be part of the the issue here is that human being if if this relationship exists mm-hmm. where the universe the cosmos the order of things responds to the sin of, of human beings to not doing things in the right way to not um to not obeying the moral code of the universe it would seem to be you know we're killing lots of people unnecessarily mm-hmm. how much more obvious can it be uh, that that under the guise of neoliberalism and and bringing freedom and democracy to the world, millions of people um, and sanctions, millions of people are losing their lives or suffering horribly because of it. And yet, all of this energy gets diverted towards protesting CO two mm-hmm. uh, or or some other such nonsense. So again, if if there if there is such a relationship, uh, and there very well there very well may be between the cosmos and, and its relationship to individual behavior or, or the behavior of humanity as a, as a mass, in ignoring these, these really glaring sins uh, and wrong actions, it would seem to be the fact that we're ignoring the fact that we're slaughtering ourselves uh, under the umbrella of lies and politics and, and leadership that, um, that people are uh following blindly mm-hmm. well i'm gonna even though i don't agree with like the extinction protocol or any of that and i agree with you in the, most of that stuff on principle i'm just going to take th- their perspective and try to try to give the like the most charitable interpretation i can to them mm-hmm. um so i agree yeah there's all this important stuff going on and all these bad things that we're that we're doing primarily you know in regard to warfare um on the other hand um I think that there are other reasons not to like pollution, for instance, right? Like there's the, even if global warming, anthropogenic global warming is a hoax and like, you know, CO2 isn't as big a deal as um, they're making it out to be, there's still no, you know, good reason to, to pollute more than is like absolutely necessary given current like technologies. Absolutely. Um, so there is, so they may be, they may be right in a certain sense that um, even if their, their projections and their models aren't correct and, and the, like the, the, the disaster they see coming isn't the disaster that will be coming, it's like there is still, a, like there is still a, like a moral but behind, um, you know, having a, like a sound ecological perspective on the, like the way to live on the earth. Um, because like when you, when you, I mean, uh, on, on the on the most micro level, it's like the the person that just throws their trash outside of their you know outside their window when they're driving mm-hmm. in the car. It's like there's something that's just wrong about that. It's repulsive. Yeah, and it's like so so on a on an individual and collective level, it's like there are all kinds of things that we do as individuals that are that are just you know missing the mark, and and I think a lot of forms of pollution are like that. Um, Again, not to the de- not necessarily to the degree that like you know the extinction protocol like radicals would think they are, but there's there's still a, a kernel of something a kernel of something in there 
that um, that even would you know apply to the, this kind of larger Laurasian perspective. Um, just wanted to throw that out yeah, there. Yeah, no, no, I, yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, when you when you think about uh, oceans of plastic, when mm -hmm. you think about the you know Exxon Valdez and the Gulf spills, mm -hmm. uh, when you think about the nuclear testing that it, that has that has made our atmosphere filled with uh, various things that are causing cancers at an, a crazy rate, uh, there's absolutely something to be said about the 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 crime of poisoning the mm -hmm. Earth Mother. Yeah. Um, so no question, and yeah. and I'm glad you mentioned that because that that's a big that's a yeah. big part of it too. I'm and, sure. And the solution that both sides of the debate can get on is fourth generation nuclear, because uh, because no CO two, and uh, and lots of cheap and efficient energy. So that's the way to go. So, <laughs> well, um, kind of half Just, in jest, but. True at the same time. Just don't build it on any fault lines. Yeah. So, uh, well, even then, you know, the fourth gen, apparently, from what I've been reading, um, are safe in the regard that they they will avoid any kind of, that you can't have a meltdown like you have in, like, older, like, nuclear power technology. So something to consider, something to talk to your representative about, and your local representative. <laughs> I'm, uh, no, sorry. I'm not, uh, I'm not paid by the nuclear industry. Um, I can assure you of that. Um, one thing, well, we're going to end the show. We're running out of time. But uh, one thing that I want to get to um, maybe in uh, a show coming up, I don't know, maybe next week, maybe further on, are some more connections. Um, I started reading this book I mentioned um, in the show we did on our favorite books of the, the year. This is one that just came out this year that I hadn't gotten to yet. Graham Hancock's one, new one, America Before. So I'll just give a quick uh, tease on it. Basically, there's some stuff in this book that we'll talk about that um, really applies to some of the things in Laurasian mythology. Um, we didn't, some things we didn't get to talk about today are the actual role of real destructions in, in human history. Um, so like cometary bombardments and, and, it, the, and the impact of, of kind of natural disasters, real, real like catastrophic um, like apocalypses that have happened in, in human history and their influence on mythology. So we'll get to that and kind of like ancient cultures and their, um, like the actual practices that they used um, to, to maintain the connection between, um, you know, the above and the below um, and the, that mirroring of events and structures on earth and in the heavens. And um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Um, specifically in this book, it's in reference to um, pre-Columbian American cultures, so North and South America, the mound-building cultures um, in North and South America, um, Amazonian, Mississippian, um, these, uh, these cultures, the history, like, so, you know, up to, well, several tens of thousands of years, tens of thousands of years ago, and um, what was going on in, like, what was going on with these mound-building cultures and what they were actually doing, because I think there's some interesting connections there to be made. So uh, make sure to tune in when we do that show. Um, and with that, thanks for watching today, and we'll see you later. Take care, everyone.